On this edition of the Scott Radley Show, we are going to be chatting with a Hamilton company that is ready and able and willing and eager to get into doing what the Premier has been asking for, which is more tests, more coronavirus tests. They have created six different devices that would allow for tests. They're going to be chatting about that with us. We're also going to be talking about something that nobody really wants to talk about because it kind of sounds like it's a slap on the wrist, which I suppose it is for all of us. Food waste. In this province, in this country, we apparently waste so much food. Is there any way we can do better? We'll chat about that. And then Don Robertson, as he does every Monday, will join us to talk about everything from Canadian University sports to hockey and old hockey and really old hockey and two and a half minute shifts and all kinds of other stuff. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There is not, I don't think people are going to say not all that much good news going on these days. We're trying. People want good news, but it's tough. These are tough days to find all kinds of happy things going on. And as a result, people are starting to get a little snaky. There's no question. You saw what's going on in the States right now. But there is one, I think, interesting, fascinating, um, encouraging story that is going on here. And it comes from the fact that over the last number of days, we've heard a lot, probably if you've been paying attention, a lot from Doug Ford and others calling for more coronavirus tests. Now, that's not the good news in itself. Um, And by the way, if you don't know how a coronavirus test is done, it's done with a swab in your nose. Not really all that pleasant. As I said a moment ago, my daughter's a nurse. She's had to have a couple of these now. Uh, And uh, she was joking that she goes, she probably could have filed a police report. She felt so violated and poked her brain, the second one. I mean, they go way in there. Anyway, it's important. And there is a shortage of the tests and a shortage of the testers. Well, there is a Hamilton company that says it is ready to now help fix this problem which is just one example of a private sector business showing how nimble and creative it can be, which is a good thing coming out of this, seeing how well our business community can do their stuff. Design Medical is the name of the company. Uh, Scott Curry is one of the guys uh, who is running it, and he joins me now. Scott, how are you today? Hello? Are you there, Scott? Oh, we, we'll get back. We'll get him back. We just lost him on the line. I'm, you know, as I say, I'm doing it from the basement. I figured, oh, well, they're just not going to connect me. <laughs> and we'll, we'll guess how this is going to go. Uh, but no, th- there are so many companies right now, private sector companies that are scrambling with openings to, to th- there are openings here to do incredible creative things on the fly. And this is one of the examples. We have this great need. Uh, Scott Curry joins you now. Scott, how are you today? Good, Scott. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Um, did you already now? I mean, this is obviously a huge area of need. We've heard the premier talk about this multiple, multiple times. Did you guys already have something like this in the works five or six weeks ago, ready to go? Yeah. So we started um, roughly, um, basically five five weeks now. Um, we've been we've been working at this roughly right out of the gate. Um, we knew that I collaborated with. Uh, one of my colleagues, Deep, I believe he's on the phone as well. Um, we basically collaborated back then, thinking about the the swab and the, the needs for the swab. 
So we originally started, we, we got out of the gate running, and within several days, we were at the point where we had a full MDL license and now validations to manufacture and produce um, swabs for Canada. But that, I mean, that seems, I mean, look, I'm not an inventor, I'm not a businessman, but that seems incredibly fast to be able to turn something around like this. Well, it is, it is incredibly fast. Um, one, one thing is, it's just from, um, from being in education, my background in education, and also being in, in the health additive manufacturing field for many years. So we've really tried to leverage our skill set and really put that at the forefront of what's needed right now, uh, dividing our own professional backgrounds and what we do um, on a daily basis. We wanted to collaborate together and, and really uh, give give back to to the province and to the country and, and what could be done about uh, this pandemic. But is is a swab something that is okay? So let me back up for a second. I I, I don't know. I, is to, not to question the difficulty of this, but is a swab a complicated device to make? Is there a lot there beyond what we see? Well, there there is quite a bit, uh, especially when um, we're talking about uh, the material qualities and talking about the technology that's needed. Um, I would ask my my colleague uh, uh, Deep Singh to to jump in here. I don't think we've been. Yeah. Have we got Deep? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here. Oh, oh, Deep. Okay, sorry. Thanks for joining us. We were just having a little trouble getting you, but yeah, um, uh, you know, are these are these difficult to to put together? So uh, there. They're, they're quite a complex piece of uh, instrument, just like any medical device. Um, they, they have to have a certain sort of material properties in order to uh, develop this, this, this device. Uh, it is going to go in someone's body, so it has to be a biocompatible material. You cannot make it out of wood. You can't have it look like a standard Q-tip with the cotton at the, at the tip um, <laughs> because that affects with the collection of the fluid required for testing. So it's, it's definitely a complex piece of device. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting with Deep Singh and Scott Curry who are with Design Medical, which is a Hamilton company that is responding to the, or trying to respond to the calls for more coronavirus test. This seems uh, deep. We were just talking about before the break about the, uh, you know, it seems like such a very simple thing. It's a, it's a, for people who would just look at it, it's a, as you say, it almost looks like a Q-tip. It's not. You're, you're I'm shocked. Right. <laughs> but I'm shocked there's a shortage because these things, it doesn't seem on the face of it to be all that, um, all that difficult to manufacture. So why has there been such a shortage at this point? Is it just, the inability to get them produced, or aren't there very many designs out there that they can use? Yeah, so there's there's actually a number of different factors. So one of the things is, um, you know, when we hear Justin Trudeau uh, give his 11 uh, a.m. speech, he always talks about that th- there's a global shortage of medical uh, equipment and devices because every, the whole world has their eyes on these instruments now. And, and the swab, the testing component is an essential component of determining whether somebody is affected with COVID or not. So the whole world is looking at the supplies and, and trying to um, capture the, the supply market. That's one area where we're seeing the shortage of supply. The other thing is um, the supplies that Canada was getting, we were receiving supplies from overseas and, and they came to Canada contaminated. Uh, so all of a sudden the health professionals realized that we can't use these 
um, swabs that, that the federal government had secured from overseas and immediately caused a chaos and the shortage in Canada. And part of what we have to do and, and why, you know, Scott and I put our brains together and said, okay, we need to take action and develop something for domestic manufacturing is because that's the only way we're going to be able to uh, secure supplies for ourselves here in Hamilton. Scott, the uh, as Deep says, you put your heads together and you came up with a design for this. There were designs for this before, though. There, there. I mean, obviously, people have had swabs before, and there are some that are out there. So, is there a, is there a big difference between different makes of these kind of things, or is again, is it mostly a production issue that they can't get enough produced? It, it is a production issue, and right now, there's a demand of uh, fifty three thousand swabs a day from Health Canada. A day so numbers and wow, they want that produced a day. So the volumes are there. Um, and rapid development needs to take place. So we have actually have six validations uh, approved by Health Canada as, at the moment. So Which means what? Sorry? What, what does that mean? We have six validations. What does that mean? Six validations mean from Health Canada, we have six designs right now that are actually approved to move to the manufacturing, hmm. um, uh, so those stages. So we're now looking at that and looking at the, the innovation, the technology needed. So we're going to be bringing this, um, bringing this technology into Hamilton, and we want to put ha- Hamilton on the stage using this type of innovation. And again, this is new innovation. It's not just typical um, uh, expanding on what's already existing. This is new development, and we want to be at the forefront of this, and we want to bring this to Hamilton and leveraging a lot of our, you know, our provincial, our provincial partners and our federal partners, and understanding what we can bring to this town, we want to bring Hamilton and put Hamilton on the map with either skill, expanding on our skilled trades, and, and, and really building it up throughout Ontario and, and again throughout Canada. Scott, this may be a really dumb question, but why do you need six different models to bring forward? Wouldn't wouldn't there be one that is sort of an accepted model for this? Yeah, so. I'll, I'll step in there. And so the, the reason why we had multiple different designs and, and processes approved is because right now we're facing a, uh, a logistical challenge in conventional technologies. If we were to go in the route of how the swabs are made today, which is using injection molding process, uh, to set up an infrastructure to support injection molding is going to take us months, if not years, to oh, okay. properly validate. Okay. So the route that we took with this technology is is, is using... Uh, advanced additive manufacturing process, which is effectively uh, a more industrialized 3D printing process to quickly ramp up swabs and production here locally. And we can start manufacturing wow. next okay. week, not, not next month, not next year. Scott, the, the other question, and I said this just before the break a few minutes ago, was I can't imagine that you guys are the only people out there who have seen this need and are now racing to try and get onto the market. Um, any idea how many other people are also trying to do what you're doing? Well, there's a, there's a lot of people on the market who are doing a lot of great things, and there's a lot of collaboration between different organizations, and there's a lot of organizations and companies that are rebranding themselves coming to the needs. Uh, for us, it's just we've we've spent a lot of time just focusing on the swab. We we knew that there'd be a demand for face shields, and there's there's people developing things for ventilators, and that's all out there right now. But we're trying to be at a, a little bit taking an advantage of our skill set and trying to really push that forward and investigate more around just focusing on that one specific area. We're the only, we're uh, the only deep- right now. 
Sorry. No, no, we do, sorry, we have a slight little delay here, but deep, just before we go, because we only have a few seconds left, coronavirus is going to presumably fade or slow down or something at some point. When this whole thing is over, obviously swabs are still needed. How, do, what numbers? I mean, what kind of, is this a big medical area when we're not in a coronavirus situation? Is this something that could extend beyond this? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what we need to do is, uh, we need to be prepared for uh, round two of coronavirus or round three of coronavirus. And currently, the reservoir uh, inventory of these swabs in Canada is very limited. So initially, we need to fulfill the requirement, which is 53,000 swabs a day. And then we need to start having a stockpile and be prepared for the future if there is cases like this that ever come up. And And the only way to do that is to manufacture locally. We cannot rely on outsourcing uh, medical essential components. We've obviously seen that from China over the last number of days. So uh, Deep Singh and Scott Curry from Design Medical. Guys, I appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much, Scott, for having us. We really thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Like all the rest of you stuck at home. Well, it's okay. We're, we're, we're doing it for the right reasons. And uh, I said to Ben during the break, the, the downside to this is I may never actually leave my house again. <laughs> I'm right now getting seven weeks to the gallon on my car, which I, you know, I suppose is pretty good. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see when the next time is. I'll have a big scruffy beard. I have not been out of fat pants now in about five weeks. All I need for Christmas now is a new supply of sweatpants and t-shirts and I, I'm good to go. Um, all right, so uh, there are some new numbers out that I was just reading that are not painting a very kindly picture of Canadians. And I'm not talking about Canadians as people, as social people, whatever else. Uh, and I'm certain that the numbers that I'm reading are applicable and probably very similar in many other parts of the developed world. Uh, but according to Value Chain Management International, Canadians are wasting, get ready for this, 5 billion pounds of food every year. Billion with a B, 5 billion pounds of food. Now, I have traveled, uh, for, I've been fortunate, I've traveled and seen parts of the world that don't have what we have. And besides that, you don't even have to travel that far. Go to different parts of Hamilton and you will find people who don't have what you have. This is pretty discouraging when you hear about this and you think, well, just a minute, why are we doing this? And I'm not preaching. I've wasted food too. Heaven knows I've wasted food too. But it's an amazing amount of food that is being thrown away. Corby Sue Newman is the head chef at HelloFresh. Uh, she joins us now. Corby th Sue, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Scott, thank you so much for having me. I just wanted to echo all of your sentiments. I'm also thrilled with the mileage I'm getting on my car. <laughs> yeah. And and my pants um, are definitely tighter than, than before. And I just yep. have to say that um, I've certainly been trying the one-woman approach to um, helping reduce the 5 billion pounds of food that you're talking yes. about. I have not um, wasted much food lately. <laughs> I agree with you. But when you hear that number though, Corby, I mean, it is, that number is insane when you, when you, and you try to think about what is a pound, like to even think what's a pound of food yeah, and then think, okay, 5 billion of those are being thrown out. That's crazy. It is crazy, Scott. Look, I'm hoping that our conversation today will 
as you said, not at all sound preachy, but hopefully um, somewhat inspirational. And despite my accent, um, I'm originally from Australia and I'm really fortunate because I had a, my father is a classically trained chef. Um, and on my mum's side, my, my nan in Australia was, you know, um, a farm girl and had chickens in the backyard and grew her own vegetables. So I really had a, a very unique relationship with understanding food and food waste. And, you know, it came from, A, my father having a restaurant and respecting the ingredient, and then my nan just supporting a family, growing her own fruits and vegetables. So I'm hoping that today our, our conversation will um, perhaps just inspire people to realize that it's not hopeless. Um, five billion pounds, unfortunately, in the context of the globe is pretty much on par with, as you said, other developing nations. Um, so I think the first thing to, to think about is, you know, for the first time, really, we're forced to look at how we interact with food because we're, we're all at home around the well world. We are, although I, I have to believe that while there is food waste at home, and, and you know, as I say, we've all done it. You, you find a, you know, some vegetable around eating, and so you toss it because it's not great right now or whatever else. But this, this goes, this starts before you even get the food home, right? Does it not at the grocery stores? If you're walking down the, the aisle of the grocery store and you mm -hmm. see an apple that's got a bruise, nobody buys that. That's gone. Yeah. That's done. Yeah. So I think what you're starting to see, um, and and it's. It's slow to come to North America, but other parts um, of, of Europe and certainly Australasia, uh, we call it imperfect fruits and vegetables. And so people are just starting to change their perception of what is acceptable. The way I was taught by my nan is that um, if, if an apple or you know whatever it is you're looking at has a, a, a little bit of a, a mark, um, it means that nature uh, was interested in it. My nan always said mm. to me, if a bug is interested in eating it, you should be as well. I'm not suggesting go buy bug-addled vegetables, <laughs> but, but don't be discouraged. That's just nature's way of saying, yeah, this is worth eating. So, But that's great to say, but that's very hard to convince people to do that because we've absolutely. been trained not to. Yeah. So, so then what do you do with those fruits and vegetables? You repurpose them. So, for example, I've got in my fridge right now well-intentioned two bunches of kale, um, we've gotten through one bunch. So now I'm looking at this wilted kale thinking, what am I going to do? So there's a couple things. I roast them in the oven with a bit of olive oil and salt. Um, my son loves green smoothies, so he doesn't get to go buy them anymore. I now make them at home. Um, you know, you give them a, a good wash, chop them up, put them in a, um, uh, a sealable bag, put them in your freezer, right? Take all the air out. So there's three different things that you can do with just one vegetable that just on the cusp of not being appealing anymore and you still uh, can use it. So that's just one thought. Um, Corby Sue, can I just make one suggestion though? Uh, that yeah. kale is the one vegetable that I would say it's okay to throw out, even when it's good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you know Maybe what? Maybe zucchinis. Two, I do understand what you're saying. We've got two guinea pigs <laughs> and guess what? I, I'm telling you, guinea pigs are... Um, that's Kale fans. Families, yeah, I was going to say, that's any family's um, built-in composters. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about a topic I don't think anybody really enjoys because nobody likes to be shamed, and we're not really trying to do that. But at the same time, uh, I think everybody listening probably can think in the last day or two 
when they're guilty of this, yours truly included, and that is food waste. Uh, Canadians, they tell us, waste 5 billion pounds of food. I didn't do the metric conversion. I apologize for those of you who prefer it in kilograms. Let's just say it's a lot. It's several billion. I don't know what the exact number is. Uh, Corby Sue Newman is the head chef at HelloFresh. And uh, we're chatting about this. And Corby Sue, you know, the, the thing that struck me as well about this, we really can't follow people's behavior in their house. Chances are that number is way higher than 5 billion pounds. That's a good point. And, you know, just another sad stat is that, you know, on average, look, the truth is overwhelmingly Canadians recognize food waste is a real problem. You know, more than half of Canadians really want to do something about it. And then when you start to talk to people in dollars and cents and you say, look, you know, your average Canadian sort of guesstimates that they're wasting $10 a week. I mean, I would hazard a guess and say it's probably triple that. You, you mm. multiply that over 52 weeks, you know, you, you've, you've literally thrown away about $1,000. So I think the first thing, Scott, is when you go shopping, and I absolutely can be accused of joining the masses four weeks ago and stocking up like a lunatic, frankly. And again, no judgment. I take it this is a judgment-free zone. Um, but you've got to shop with intention, right? Really just like take a step back and ask yourself, do I really need, um, you know, three bunches of kale, just back to, you know, <laughs> your least favorite ingredient. Do I really need that? Um, but it, it's so much of it seems to be, and I go back to something I mentioned a moment ago, we have been trained, we've been conditioned in this part of the world that we eat food that is really, really perfect. And if it's not perfect, or if there's, if it's, even if the best before date has passed, even if it smells or tastes totally fine, we don't touch it. We've been conditioned to get rid of food that we have any questions about. And that seems like it's a, gonna be a really difficult thing to try and change some way that you've been brought up. I do agree with you there, but I will just challenge you on this. Who would have believed three months ago that you and I would be having a conversation from our basements, right? The world True. turned upside nope. down. So if anything, perhaps now is the time for us to really examine you know, what our our behavior. So four weeks ago, doesn't take a rocket scientist, it was fear. That's what, you know, motivated us to buy more than what we needed. I mean, the basic principles of what I do um, in a meal kit is I, I plan, I pre-portion. And that's one of the things, you know, with a meal kit, um, we save actually probably less than um, just under 40% of food waste because now we're sending you the ingredients, just what you need. So if you take the basic principles of what a meal kit does, you can start to already see the difference in your compost, in your garbage when you take it out weekly. Um, the big word I would say is pivot. Like right now, pivot. Because things that uh, we've just taken everything for granted, everything in abundance, I'm out every single day, you know, now all of that's been challenged. We still have a lot of great food available, but really start to plan pre-portion. Um, again, I talk about my nan. Uh, if something's on sale, like right now, asparagus is fantastic. So I'm, I did buy extra and I've preserved. Um, I've, I've pickled some asparagus for the summer, you know, for summer salads. So I don't need to sort of worry about that. I think if we just give ourselves credit that, we can actually use this as an opportunity to challenge some things that we've taken for granted. 
And that does seem something you just said there, that does seem to be a big problem. It, it, and maybe it's only in our house, but leftovers seem to be a big part of the problem that they get put into a Tupperware. And then all of a sudden, four weeks later, you find them. And perhaps if you were making the right amount of food, instead of making so much and say, oh, we'll have this for dinner two days from now, and then you forget about it. Maybe that solves part of the problem. Oh, Scott, it's not just your house. Can I tell you, I've got two teenagers that, you know, leftovers, they don't even know what that means. <laughs> Right. <laughs> they're, they're not interested in leftovers. So that is just something that, yeah, like if I make it, I make enough that I know my 17 year old and 14 year old, there's going to be plenty for them, enough for me. And that's it. And they loved it and they want more. Yeah, I'll make it next week. Right. If we just start to take a step back. So if you pre-cut your vegetables, I mean, when I had these conversations three months ago, I had to acknowledge that we're all pressed for time. For those of us lucky enough to still work from home, we're still pressed for time, but I don't have to commute anymore. I don't have to wrestle with getting on the train. So now that time that I've won back, I'm putting back into my family. So if we start to look at food waste like that, then it starts to become a habit. Like, are, Is there something that you do regularly with food that that you know, you did before this? Was it like you always had toast for breakfast? Do you see what I'm saying? So if we just start to build that habit, by the time we're on the other side of this, maybe that's a habit that will actually stick. So it's an interesting topic for sure. And it's a depressing <laughs> one in some sense, but it's an interesting one. Corby Sue Newman, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys when hockey is allowed to be played and Calm Choice Realty when houses are allowed to be sold and a variety of other things that uh, he does when people don't have to be in their house or in their basement or out in the back porch or wherever he is today. Don, how are you? Good, Scott. How are you? I'm in the shop uh, tonight. In the shop? Oh, what are you making in the shop? Well, I don't make much. I just clean up. <laughs> <laughs> You don't it's want to see anything I'll tell you that. Oh, well, you and me then. one spot to the other. I got lots of time, so. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are doing There are going to be more clean garages and clean basements after this is all done because people are all saying, well, I've got, I've got the time. And how stupid is it going to look for me or for you or for anyone else at the end of this if you go, oh, man, I should I really should have got around to cleaning that room, but I didn't have time. No, I'm gonna. So, I'll be painting my garage and my shop floor, I guess, and all kinds of things. I'm gonna get done. Looks like I'm gonna have extra time. It's not. Well, is, they're not opening it up next week, so. No, and you're you're in real estate. I mean, it's got to be. We've had some people on talking about it, but I mean, you can't do open houses very well, and you can't take too many people through. How it's got to be tough these days. You're not allowed to do open houses for one thing, and. Uh, there's also a form that you have to have filled out if you're going to show a property. You know, I've got um, a couple where, you know, they're fine if it gets shown, but they want people to wear rubber gloves and sanitize, and everybody's trying to do the right thing. I, I kind of like it. I'm still busy. I was out on a farm today, so some of the stuff I do is still okay. You know, I was in an industrial building last week that was vacant, and, you know, you stay 15 feet away from the guy, so... But if you're just strictly residential sales, boy, you're you got to get pretty creative. It's hard to sell somebody something, you know, by just going on a virtual tour. 
we've mm. got uh, 35 condos for sale at the Vistas on Charlton that we've just done some tours of, so people will be able to buy those remotely because they're just under construction. But, boy, it's it's an interesting time to be trying to do this, I'll tell you. Well, it's also an interesting time for sports, and, and we, we talk sports every every Monday at this time, and... You know, I'm, I I got wondering today. I, I I was starting to think to myself yesterday and today. So, can I? Is it exactly about sports that I miss? Because I'm I mean, obviously, I'm missing it. I'm desperately looking for anything. I mean, you and I have talked about the fact that I watched marble wrestling or marble racing. Marble wrestling would have been really interesting. Marble racing the other day. Um, what is it about sports that you miss right now? The competitiveness, I think, and watching premier athletes play. I mean, I golf not particularly well, but uh, Ron Foxcroft and I play a couple guys every summer and seem to be able to beat them, but I'm not real good at it because I don't practice it. But when you watch the PGA, when you there's so many great golfers, just to use that as an example. You know, I've um, I, I played a bit with Mackenzie Hughes and some of the things he does. And he doesn't go out there and win every week. I mean, that's how good these guys are. So especially, I think the things that I miss as much as anything are watching sports that I've played and being able to look at them and really understand how superior and prolific these guys are at what they do. And it's, you know, that's an appreciation I have. I mean, I never played hardball as a kid because I grew up in Linden and we didn't have hardball, we had fastball. But I love watching Eddie Fainer when he was around and you can go watch what he could do. But just the, the sheer excellence, like I got caught up in the Raptors thing when they went on their march and became uh, NBA champions. Looks like they'll be NBA champions two years in a row uh, by default. But, you know, you, you just get such an appreciation for the athletic ability. I think that's always the attraction when the Olympics come along. I do subscribe to you, though. They do need the odd high school champion to go in the race just to show everybody how great these guys are because, uh, you know, the guy that came sixth is an outstanding athlete. And I think that's the attraction for the Olympics, too, because it's just the flat-out best in the world at what they do. Yeah, for those who don't know, we've talked about this before. It's my proposal or whatever that the Olympics, the thing the Olympics are missing, and I love the Olympics, the thing the Olympics are missing is an average Joe in every race. So you can have a level of context about how good the athletes really are. Because when every, when the 100-meter race goes on and Usain Bolt wins by a stride and everybody is one-tenth of a second behind him, you don't really understand how fast that guy is until you put me or, as you say, even a high school sprinter or some guy they pulled in off the stands and say, you run beside. And when Usain Bolt finishes and the other guy has half the track still to go, you go, oh, okay. Like, and and Don, you said, you know, you've played around a golf with Mackenzie Hughes or, or more. I've played a round of golf with Mackenzie Hughes. And listen, I am sure that Mackenzie Hughes never went back and told his friends about how much fun he had because, I mean, I'm awful. But it is stunning when you can see up close when a professional one of the very best in the world is doing their thing and you can see it up close and compare exactly you and them 
man, it is it is an unbelievable eye opener of how good these guys and women really are. No, the uh, the the things that the, and they don't take them for granted either. Like Mackenzie Hughes isn't as good as he is because he wasn't out hitting golf balls as a kid, and every chance he got to pick up the stick and hit a ball. I mean, though, and the the premier guys really have to work at it. And Tiger Tiger Woods is uh, well, probably the best ever, and he works very hard at his game, which makes him. If he didn't work hard at it, he'd be like the rest of the pack. But when mm. you get that ability, and then you apply yourself, I mean, these guys don't take anything for granted. The basketball players, the hockey players, I mean, they work hard at their trade. And I think they appreciate how good they are. But the real great ones, Sidney Crosby, Wayne Gretzky, they just wanted to get better and better and better. And, and they're all obsessed. They're, they're all obsessed. I'm convinced that there is, and I, I don't say it negatively, there is an obsession with all these people. You, There is not a single guy who plays on the PGA Tour who does not have an obsession with golf. Yeah, none of them are doing it because it's a job they don't like. No, they've been out there as a hobby since they were kids for 15, 16, 17 hours a day because they were obsessed with getting better. You don't go and say, I'll do my hour today of, you know, I'll putt for a bit and I'll chip for a bit and that's good, I'm fine. That's not how it works with any of these guys. The, the the guys who are in the NHL, all of them have been obsessed, have done skating camps and summer camps and played all year round and blah, blah, blah. There is there is nobody who is casual at any of these levels. No, they're, uh, I mean, they, they, they just don't stop it. I mean, when you're going to be like a Gretzky and Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid, and when you're going to be that prolific of a player, you have to love it and you have to work at it. You know, Austin Matthews in Toronto, Mitch Marner, those guys are likely working on things, you know, and, and now today, funny, I'll, I'll use the comparison of hockey because it's the easiest one for me, but some of the things that you now see with guys putting the puck, with their stick between their legs and tipping it up over, I mean, I've seen that at real McCoy practices, right, where the guys will do it at practice, but heaven forbid they ever try it in a game. Some of these guys are doing this stuff at full speed now. I mean, it's phenomenal. And the ability that they have to have to do that and get it over a goalie's shoulder, I mean, they're not scoring on you when you played. They're, they're scoring on NHL goalies. It is. And, you know, when you talk about the differences, I we were chatting today. Uh, I was chatting today with somebody about this. And there is, because there's no sports on TV, and when you say, what are you missing? Well, one of the things that I'm, getting that I hadn't expected to was the sports networks because they're desperate have been putting on all kinds of stuff and some of it are old hockey games and not I'm not talking old like back in the days when you wore newspapers for shin pads in 1912 Uh, I mean they've been showing games from the 80s and the 70s and just this weekend I watched the uh the uh, Good Friday Massacre, the playoff game between the Quebec Nordique and Montreal Canadiens that was just, you know, <laughs> you don't have that kind of stuff in hockey. Bench-clearing brawl after bench-clearing brawl. But when you watch even hockey from the 80s, so which doesn't seem that long ago, but it is. It's getting on 40 years now. But the level of speed, the speed, the level of play, everything is so far behind what the game is now. It's unbelievable how the game has changed in that time. 
what it is, and you have to watch that. And Phil Esposito with his oh. two and a half minute shifts, you know, just never coming off. Like you know, he and Bobby Orr seemingly playing the entire game, you know, and 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 just circling behind his net so he could have a little bit of a rest and go for another two minutes. Now, you know, Orr was in a league of his own, of course, but the other guys, some of the, I mean, there's a lot of. Well, I shouldn't say. I was going to say there's a lot of guys that played in the National Hockey League in the 70s and 80s that couldn't play today. But I, I, I'd want to rephrase that. I, I think that the, one of the reasons that the hockey's so good today is nutrition, uh, training, and the ability. And I think if those guys trained at the same level, like I don't think there's ashtrays and, and uh couple tubs of beer in the dressing room after the games nowadays. <laughs> no, not so you know much. What I mean? and, that, and training camp was, you know, just don't come in in awful shape because training camp is almost a month long and training camp was to get you in shape because the guys would go out and not care what they ate, probably had a few beers, played some fastball. You know what I mean? Training camp was to get in shape. Now training camp's three days, three days long and they start playing games because these guys are machines. So what I'm saying is that a lot of the athletes that played would be so much different if they had the training that, you know, that the McDavid's and the Austin Matthews have had. And, and they, that was never an opportunity for them. So, and the game was so much different. I read the piece in the spec today. And I don't know if it was Mitch Marner or something saying, you know, I couldn't believe how they're hooking Bobby Orr as he goes through the middle and what was a penalty. You know, you just grab onto a guy. If you, I remember refereeing in that area. Hooking was, if you didn't pull the guy down, it wasn't a hooking penalty. Like yeah. If you just hooked him to slow him down, that was perfectly acceptable. If you ever called that a penalty when I was refereeing senior hockey, they'd have thrown you out of the rink. Like, the guy didn't, you know, they'd be screaming, the guy didn't go down. And that was the benchmark. You didn't have to call well, any penalties and, if you didn't want to. And you talk about those long shifts. I mean, look, yeah, Phil Esposito, uh, and you're not lying about two-and-a-half-minute shifts. And, of course, you would never – do that today and so you always have people say well look he scored what was it 76 goals or 77 76 goals he scored the one year before he was passed by Gretzky you say well he'd never score 76 goals because he wouldn't be on the ice all that much well maybe maybe not I still think that even if he had shorter shifts the only way to compare people and um the only way to compare people Don is to compare them against their peers right it's, it's you can't compare an athlete to a, an athlete from a different era it's impossible. You have to compare, okay, who was the best in his time and how much better was he than his peers? And Phil Esposito was, as a goal scorer, monumentally better than the rest of his peers. He would have figured it out. He would have been a guy who still would have scored goals no matter what era he was in. They always said Gretzky couldn't skate. Today, he would lead the National Hockey League in scoring. Well, maybe not today because he's 60. But if he was 30 years old, <laughs> he could still lead the national now at 60 he'd probably be in the top 20 but he could still he would still find a way as you say to be the best player on the ice because he could pass like nobody else he played with a center red line the way he passed can you imagine if there was no center red line when he was playing <laughs> he'd be hitting curry at full stride at the far blue line and and if there was no hooking and all the stuff you talked about, I mean, there are things that are out of the game now where you say that he'd be at a disadvantage, but there are other things where the game has opened up to the point where it would be perfect for him now, where he'd be at a huge advantage. Same with Mario Lemieux. Same with Bobby Orr. Imagine Bobby Orr right now. Oh, 
Yeah, when you couldn't hook them or hold them or anything else. And, and know, almost it, no hitting. Funny. Yeah. You go to golf tournaments. Like, you know, I mean, I don't go to a lot of golf tournaments anymore. But the ones you go to, everybody, you know, they, they find out you're a little bit involved in hockey. And it gets around. So who was the best ever? You saw Gretzky play. You saw Bobby Orr, Merrill Mew. Like, was Gretzky better than Orr? And I, my constant answer is, it doesn't matter. I mean, it really doesn't matter if Orr or Gretzky were the best or Gordie Howe because, as you pointed out, they were the very best in their era. And the eras are different, so the comparisons have to be equally as different. At least but you, when you say it I... doesn't matter, Don, when you say it doesn't matter, there are people who will fight you for that. I mean, look, I, I remember when I was in high school and it was Gretzky and it was Lemieux, and you were either in the Lemieux camp or you were in the Gretzky camp, and you were not allowed to cross over and say both were the best. You, I mean, it was like it mattered to people. It And the, the, the debate with Bobby Orr or Wayne Gretzky, like it matters to people. If you say one or the other and they disagree, they're not going to say, oh, sure, whatever. It matters. Ask Bill Kelly, big Bruins fan. It's an yeah, easy I know. for him. I know. But if you're if you were a big Oilers fan in the '80s, or you grew up in the '80s, and Gretzky was, and, and you'd never seen Bobby Orr play, but you're right. When you compared Lemieux and Gretzky, but they could both do very unique things. Lemieux, basically, I mean, he was a great passer, uh, uh, like Gretzky. I mean, both prolific goal scorers. But they, the the ability that Lemieux had because of his size, he was a monster out there. Mm-hmm. So he could clearly do things that Wayne Gretzky couldn't. So you're not even comparing apples and apples. You're comparing hockey players, but the styles were totally different. It's uh, we got to take a break. I will say that when we're talking about the best, it's ironic that this uh, that we morphed to this. This was not the plan to, to go here. We were, we started talking about what are you missing about sports, but I will point out that um, Rick Zamprin from CHML and Bubba O'Neill from CHCH and Steve Milton from the Spec and I have just started a new YouTube thing that we're doing a few times a week now. Uh, People can find it on YouTube. They can find it on Twitter. And the topic today we are talking about with the first one is Michael Jordan. There's a new Netflix series out about him. Is Michael Jordan really the best basketball player of all time? It it all comes back to these discussions about who is the best at whatever sport. And you know what, Don? Uh, Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. It just creates all kinds of great discussions, hopefully with no fist flying. But uh, but it does create good discussion for sure. It's it's an interesting discussion. But did anybody other than Wilt Chamberlain ever score a hundred points in one game? And you say Wilt Chamberlain. My, my argument was that you know, like no one is dumping on Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael no. Jordan to me is my my thing is again. You go back and you compare it to your peers, and that's why I said Wilt Chamberlain to me would probably be the guy. But but there are other things that factor into it as well. And I mean, I could also make a case for Magic Johnson that if you were drafting a team from scratch and you could take a player from any era, anybody, that I would take Magic Johnson before Michael Jordan, potentially. But that's you know what? Great, These, that's always a, it's always a great way to do that, Scott, when you say, okay, any era you get one pick to start to build your team with. Who is it? Yep. And that kind of tells you the answer to the question. I'd like to hear what you miss about sports because you asked me. I'm more curious what you miss. You know, I, I had a really hard time whittling it down to a thing. I, I, I just know that 
it, it's become a habit almost that I, I go to my TV and the first places I stop are, Hey, what's on the sports channels. And, uh, I, I don't know whether it's just comfort food or whether it's the competition, as you say, um, you know, but even let, when I'm watching old you, stuff now, I'm, let, let me ask you this. If any of the sports could come back, but only one of them, which one would you pick? Right Which now, you I'd probably take. Most? Right now, I'd probably take the Stanley Cup playoffs because it's the playoffs. But if you asked me in November, I might not pick that one if I had to pick which one it was because you know the dog days of the hockey season are not always the most inspiring. Um, but the, right now, sure, I, just the, might be the best World Series we'd ever seen. You might say, "Geez, I want to." See that's right. Again. That's right. But right, uh, right now, though, I, you know, the playoffs would be into the second round and. Uh, I mean, granted, you and I would be getting a lot less sleep because there'd be at least one or two a week that would go into double or triple overtime that we'd be staying up <laughs> to watch. So maybe we're healthier without it and you're getting more cleanup done in your shop. But uh, that, that would probably be my choice right now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Please, Mr. Leisman, let the players fight. Please, Mr. Leisman, let the players fight. Scott Radley Show. Thought that would I'd let that one play out because I know how that sentiment is so near and dear to the heart of Don Robertson who joins me now. You you were singing alto in that one, weren't you? I, I think I was. <laughs> I was singing along. It was I remember in the OHL in the late seventies on the line, you we would break up anywhere from six to ten fights a night. You know, I do a lot of Brantford Alexander games because they were close, but I mean, holy, I mean, if there wasn't two or three scraps in the first period, it was a bad game. You'd be going, what's wrong with these guys? Are they asleep? I mean, and the fans would be screaming at you, let them go. So we, Jimmy Carmen and I, who I worked the lines with a lot, I mean, we just let them go. People loved it. You just step in when they were tired, and every once in a while, that's back when you didn't wear a helmet either. Every once in a while, you get one off the back of the bean. But anyway, they were always a lot of fun to break up. You know, I'm looking around the shop out here. <laughs> Scott, and I realized why I'm cleaning up. Susan's daughter dropped over yesterday for a social visit, and they're looking around saying, you know, if you put a couch in here and a satellite dish up, and I realize what's happening is I'm getting this thing cleaned up. I think my lovely wife, Susan, has an alternate plan that I'll be living out here if I can get it insulated in the heater. <laughs> no, you don't even need the, the insulation. Yeah. Well, Just a little I coal stove. <laughs> If she, well, if she comes out and says, "Why don't we insulate this?" and I know I'm in big trouble. Yeah, the well, neighbors we'll, we'll come over that, with a cup of tea, and it's kind of like home. Well, there was a disagreement going on. Story <laughs> that came out today says the University of Lethbridge is shutting down both its men's and women's hockey programs, citing three straight years of cuts to its operating grant. And I'm wondering how. Whether you think, as I do, that these kind of things are a matter of time, that, you know, with with costs of things, with, and I'm not even talking about everything that's going on in the world right now. I don't necessarily mean that. It's just hockey, football, all these other sports, they're getting so expensive. Do you share my thought that, you know, we're, we're heading towards a time when a lot of universities in this country are going to be making some cuts to their to their athletic departments because keeping a lot of these sports going is just too expensive. What I've never really been able to understand, maybe I 
maybe maybe I'm going to answer my own question, but you know the NC. We've had lots of guys. The, the Watson brothers played down in Michigan, and we've had lots of guys that have played university. Darren Hadar, and you know those buildings are almost packed. I'm talking about hockey now because football and basketball they're virtually sellouts every time they play. And I know you do your more than your share covering Max Sports, and they're never sold out. And if they are, they're not filling six, seven thousand seat buildings. I think in the states, the football and the basketball are profit centers for those guys. But up here, hundred percent hockey, may, maybe because there's a million places to get your hockey fix. Like if Mac had a hockey team like they used to in the eighties. Uh, you know, they would play at a, a Greitmeyer Arena, and but there wasn't generally enough people there to have a game of bridge to watch them play. So it was 100% financed by the university, and that's a sad state. But, you know, you could always watch the OHL. You could always watch half a dozen junior teams. And where these university teams are, there is an abundance of hockey, or there was no hockey to watch, and that was the main event because, you know, it was a university town and the – football teams playing and I mean you look at high school I don't want to get off on a on the wrong track here but uh, football Friday night lights football high school football some of those stadiums are 18,000 people that's, yep. that's unheard of you go to a high school game around here and you got family and friends watching it right and so I think you're you're right that there's going to be a retraction on the ability to fund them because there's no revenue stream out of it it was not yeah and, and look I, uh, so nobody misunderstands i'm not suggesting that all university sports or all universities are going to go down this road i mean you know mcmaster's football team it gets enough fans into the stands that it pays some of the bills i suppose and you know there's other schools that do as well but there's other places where there's just nobody watching and not much interest and they're not very competitive and i've i've long thought you know what th- this whether it's football is the obvious one because it's so expensive, but there are some schools that I just truly believe in time are going to say, you know what, it's just not worth it to us anymore. And hockey is every bit almost, you would think as expensive as football. And again, if you've got a program, Don, that is completely non-competitive year after year after year, and you're getting nobody in to watch it. So as you say, it's completely funded by the university rather than by any support. Man, I, I just I just don't see those sports lasting too long at university, and and that that would be a shame because there have been some great university teams and programs and pl- and games and tournaments and playoffs over the years, but uh, you know it's it, it seems inevitable to me. Well, and it is it is it is expensive, and and these guys pay their coaches. You ran the story over the last couple of weeks of what some of these coaches are getting paid. And they're not getting paid twenty, thirty thousand dollars. It's not a part-time job. Like these head coaches no. are making big bucks, and on top of well, the big bucks for Canada. Else, big bucks yes, for big Canada. Football. I mean, you know, Mike Shashevsky down the co- basketball coach at Duke is making ten million bucks a year. You could put all the football coaches and basketball coaches probably, well, for sure, in Canada together, male and female, and their salaries wouldn't amount to what Mike Shashevsky is going to make. But for Canada, and yes, big money and it. And it's a profit center for them. You know, they're not doing it because they like them. They're doing it because they can afford them. And obviously they want them. He must be fairly good at what he does. I mean, they're not paying a guy $10 because he's not good at it. But you know what I mean? That's just in their budget. 
And you talk about weak, um, you talk about weak programs. I remember looking in the standings in York University, their football team and U of T. I mean, they they couldn't beat anybody. Maybe the maybe when they obviously when they played each other, they had to be a winner. But they'd be like <clears throat> one win, two wins a season, maybe. <clears throat> Pardon me. So you're right about continuing on and never getting any better. And success breeds an opportunity to build your program, right? Like Greg Marshall went to Western after Mac, after his stint with the Ticats. And his name himself in Canadian uh, CIS, all of a sudden that program is, they weren't bad anyway, but now they're, you know, they got a shot at it every year. So there's only a few elite teams like Laval, who probably should play in the CFL because their guys are all in their 20s and, you know, they're they're almost pro players. But, you know, out of Quebec, there's a couple teams that can compete out of the East. You know, so there's only a handful of really good teams that have a crack at it every year. And then you've got a bunch of bottom feeders. And you're right, the guys running the universities are going to have to sit back and say, is this really adding any value to our university program here by having a football team that wins one or two and when they get on a roll, they'll win four, and there was 200 people to watch the last game. It starts becoming embarrassing. Well, the big challenge, too, is, and I've never understood this completely. I, I really don't. I've tried to figure it out. We know what American university fans do, what alumni do. I mean, in the alumni in the States, if you're an alumni of Ohio State or of Tennessee or of, I mean, pick your school. It doesn't matter. I could name a million of them. You are a diehard alumni, probably a donor. Certainly, you're going to wear the shirts and the sweatshirts and you're going to cheer and you're going to go to the games and you are if you're an alumni of that place you are in that family until the day you die and it matters and that doesn't in any way translate up here and i've never quite figured it out but there is such a world of difference successful business guys that come out of those universities right that make huge contributions back Mm -hmm. to the sporting programs Yep. You know, like I and I don't know who they are or who they should be in Canada, but there's got to be a just a raft of successful business guys that went through Mac. Mar- Marvin Ryder has created some pretty brilliant people in that business program. They're very successful, but you're right. I mean, are, are, you see them going to the games and wearing Mac, you know, game day shirts or sweatshirts. It they don't have the allegiance that they do down in the states. Well, and here's the weirdest part about it is in the last number of years, there have been a couple times that American, that big American athletic programs have come up here to play. The the ones I can remember are both in volleyball, men's volleyball. Now, Mac has an exceptional volleyball team every year, but they draw okay in the national championships when they host it, they do well, but they do okay. But when Ohio State came up to play, suddenly people are lined up outside the door. And I'm thinking, wait a second. Why is it that you won't come generally to watch McMaster play, who, by the way, beat Ohio State repeatedly? You won't come to watch the the team here, but as soon as it's a U.S. team that you've heard of, it's suddenly now a very big deal. And then even after McMaster had beaten them, the the place was not packed anymore. And I was like, I I I don't understand it. I don't. We're we are for some reason even north of the border. We're enamored with the NCAA and with American college sports, and we don't give a hoot about our own. Well, I, part of it is marketing, right? The, the final four, the final sweet 16, That's true. the, uh, the bowl games, you know, we got, we all get caught up in that. There's, there's guys I know that, 
follow college football because they're in pools. I don't know an awful lot of guys that are in pools for the CFL games. <laughs> you're, you're not in a you're not in an Atlantic Athletic Division pool to see who's going to win between St. FX and St. Mary's. No, and and you know what? I'll bet you there's more people in Southern Ontario that could name ten university uh, U.S. university basketball and football teams, and they couldn't name ten Canadian football teams. Hundred percent at the college level. Hundred percent right. Uh, I think, but I, I think to answer your question, when Ohio State comes up, because we're Canada, and I think what we do is we want to go and watch because that, that legitimizes the fact that we're as good as they are. Doesn't mean they're fans. It's just that they want to go and see if we can beat the U.S. Because they're 10 times I don't disagree. Don't disagree. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Usually say in studio with Don Robertson. Uh, neither of us are in studio, but he is here as he is every Monday at this time. We have a couple minutes left. And Don, we were just chatting about the Canadian University system and and how much of a challenge it can be you know we don't need to look any further for how different it would work with money you mentioned quebec you mentioned laval look i mean laval is what it is in football and in other sports because they have so much money from sponsors they fill up an eleven thousand seat stadium every single game it's not difficult to see what happens to sports when that kind of money and that kind of fan base is injected into it well and you can't and I, I, I don't know exactly what the rules are. Year, in years gone by, guys would guys I know will go to the States on a hockey scholarship or more hockey than anything else, right, because we produce more hockey players than basketball players. But the Canadian universities weren't able to offer scholarships. Now, in my mind, the big part of that is because that's just going to add to the expense. It's not like they're, they've said, look, we've got a million dollars a year here in our budget that if we spend it and give it to guys that want scholarships, we're still going to make $5 million, right? I mean, if you if uh, Max started providing full scholarships, full rides for guys that play in their football program, and they're not drawing well. So like all sports, even university sports, clearly, if you've got the money, you can get very creative with some guys. Yeah, and there's... a part-time job at the university for... $10,000 a year because they're cleaning the cafeteria once a month for five. And minutes. there's why we see in, there's why we see in the volleyball, we got to run unfortunately, but there's why we see in the volleyball, why Mac is competitive because it's a long story, but the American universities can only offer so many scholarships. And that means that good Canadian players can stay at home rather than go to the States for volleyball. And so, you know, it's not like American athletes are somehow genetically superior they have greater opportunities, and as you say, if you're going to give them full rides to come, why would you not go? But if the good athletes stay home, boy, you can see what a good athletic program you can build here with fans and with money and with athletes. So anyway. Um, maybe it's a, maybe if all those sports were better, they'd draw more people. It's a it's a giant chicken and an egg, isn't it? Because if you – but even then, you know, Max volleyball team has been outstanding for years now, and they still – you know, they don't fill the place for every match. So it's, um, I think you said something, though, a few minutes ago in marketing, big, big, big part of this, and 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 marketing and buy-in. When, as I say, i got to get it going here, but when the Blue Jays were at their absolute best, you had to be at the games because that was the place to be. It was the coolest place to be. That's what you got to create, yeah. a situation where you feel like you have to be there. It's hard to do that. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. Have a good day. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.